welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bowhunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Bird. Alright, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and as always, we're thrilled that you've taken some time to be with us today. You know, today, quite frankly, um, I'm looking forward to the show, but there's a part of me that wishes that we didn't have to do it at all, because we're going to talk about a topic that I'd rather not talk about if it came right down to it, and that's chronic wasting disease. And if you're listening to the show... Chances are very good that you're a bow hunter. And if you're a bow hunter, chances are very good that you've heard of chronic wasting disease before. And certainly it's a major issue um, facing uh, our deer elk populations uh, throughout North America, particularly uh, white-tailed deer as it spreads um, to, to, to more and more states every year. And it poses some real challenges uh, to the future of deer management and deer hunting. And, and when it comes to chronic wasting disease, I think the most troubling thing is that so many times I feel like there are more questions than answers when it comes to CWD. And that's why I've asked two gentlemen to to join me today who are expert in the CWD issue, both coming at it with different perspectives, but I think it's going to be an extremely informative show, and I am looking forward to hearing what both of them have to say. First guest that I've got on the line is Kip Adams. Uh, Kip is a wildlife biologist and the director of conservation for the Quality Deer Management Association. Uh, Kip, thanks for being with us today on Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. Absolutely, Christian. Uh, my pleasure. And the other guest that I have with us today, and I'm excited to have him as not only a first-time guest on Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, but just somebody that I'm dealing with for the first time, is uh, Dr. Davin Henderson. And Davin uh, holds a, a PhD in biochemistry, and he is a researcher at Colorado State University in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Pathology, which is uh, part of the College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. So that's that's a mouthful right there. Davin, thank you for being with us on Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you got it. So I think we ought to start out with, with a basic you know, background of, of CWD and where we stand today. And then we can branch out from there and get into some of the research that's going on that, that Davin's been involved with. Um, Kip, you know, I realize that's a huge question, but as succinctly as possible, could you give people a a very brief explanation of what chronic wasting disease is and where it it was first identified and where we stand now in the whitetail world when it comes to CWD? Sure, Christian. Uh, I could use a bunch of big words, uh, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, From from a deer hunter's perspective, essentially, we know that chronic wasting disease 
disease is a, is a disease that affects a deer. Uh, it's 100% fatal to all deer. Uh, there's no cure for it. There's no vaccine for it. Um, and essentially, once a deer gets it, and uh, it essentially uh, eats holes in a deer's brain, which then eventually causes a deer to simply waste away, which hence is where the name came from, and, and dies. And, uh, you know, you can get incredibly uh, complex with describing the prions and, and how are they exactly fold and misfold and all that, but it doesn't, you know, none of that matters to a deer hunter. We just know that it kills deer. Unfortunately, deer can transfer it to other deer, which is never a good thing. And, uh, and there's a lot that we don't know about it. So uh, um, there's, a, there's a lot that we do know, fortunately, and some ways that we can try to fight it. And I'm sure we'll talk about those today. But uh, from, uh, from a deer's perspective, uh, it's not something that, uh, that we want deer to get. It's something that we don't know how to cure yet. It's something we've known about for quite a while now. It was identified first in the, in the late 60s and then early 1970s, actually at a, a Colorado State uh, research facility. Um, and now we know that it affects mule deer and elk and moose and whitetails and reindeer and, and then likely some other uh, species of deer that we just haven't studied much yet. But uh, the things that we love to hunt, we know are affected by it. Um, not a good thing. And uh, Tennessee was recently uh, the 26th state uh, in the United States to, uh, to confirm the presence of CWD. So we have a few Canadian provinces. There's actually a few foreign countries that have it. But uh, here in the states, uh, over half of our states have now confirmed it. So uh, that's, not, uh, that's not looking good uh, for the future. So hence the reason that this is such a big issue and, and garners so much interest in uh, discussion today. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that's scary about CWD as opposed to other, you know, there are a variety of, of illnesses and things that can affect deer. Of course, um, you know, EHD or more commonly known as blue tongue is one that a lot of hunters are familiar with. And that's a virus. And, you know, that can really whack a deer herd on a localized or regional basis, Kip. But that runs its course and then it's over, you know, and a herd can rebound pretty quickly. The thing that makes CWD so scary as a deer hunter or anybody who, who loves deer is that it's such a pernicious disease and it it can take many years of incubation within individual animals before symptoms are manifested. And then over the course of that time, the infectious agents can become distributed throughout that environment and they, they last so long, often said for years, and, you know, I'll let Dr. Henderson respond to this, you know, that these prions, these misformed proteins that are thought to be responsible or CWD can stay for years and years in the soil uh, of that area so that even if you'd remove all the infected animals, that deer that move into that area in the future are at risk of becoming reinfected and the whole thing starts over again. So, uh, Dr. Henderson, uh, you know, feel free to respond to that and, and talk about sort of what the maybe some of the challenges are when it comes to, you know, combating this disease. Sure, absolutely. So, yeah, prion diseases are, are really stable. The protein um, that causes the causes CWD and other prion diseases like um, mad cow disease and, and, and um, diseases of humans are, are really stable. Uh, they can survive medical sterilization. They can survive in the environment for really long periods of time. Um, there's a, there was a study done um, oh, quite a while ago, actually, that looked at um, scrapie, which is this prion disease of sheep, and they um, took sheep out of a paddock for uh, 15 years and then put them back and put sheep back into that paddock with no um, no treatment of the, that 
ground at all. And the sheep that went back in actually ended up contracting scrapie from that environment again. So we know um, from studies like that and other studies that um, these spring diseases can last for quite a while um, in environmental sources. We don't know if it's on surfaces, like on trees, or if it's in soil. We don't really know the mode of transmission in the environment. So the, the challenge with CWB is that if it gets into an area um, and is eliminated quickly, then um, it, it's possible to potentially get rid of it, like the state of New York um, was capable of going into an area and sharpshooting a number of deer, and, and they haven't had another positive detected in quite a while. So um, a professor at the University of Wisconsin, Michael Samuel, had a, um, a really good point in a seminar that I saw recently. He thinks there's uh, two phases of the CWD transmission events. Um, so the initial phase, uh, the transmission occurs from animal to animal, where the environment really isn't contaminated to a point yet. And then um, later, after potentially many years or even maybe a decade, um, with CWD in that population, um, that environmental reservoir could build up to the point where that just that environment is a danger to deer um, for the foreseeable future. And um, and that we, we don't know exactly how that environmental, environmental reservoir um, accumulates. It, it could be from deer dying in the forest from CWD. So we know the highest levels of the disease are found in tissues and especially high in the brain. Um, or it could be through environmental contamination um, with urine and feces. Um, and that, that the levels are so low in those two um, excreta that um, it's not particularly dangerous from for animal to animal transfer. But you know we're talking hundreds of liters over the course of months and thousands of liters over the course of years of urine uh, building up in the environment through an entire herd uh, in feces, then there's the potential for an environmental reservoir to be started that way. Um, but uh, we don't really know exactly how that works, and, and studies to, to look at that have been uh, challenging, mostly because of the, the, you know, using actual deer for the study and also the timelines involved are, are not really research-based projects, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dr. Henderson, how long how long does it take once an animal begins to exhibit symptoms of CWD? And you can mention what those symptoms are before they would actually uh, die. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, the CWD is a, a one of a one of two fairly unique prion diseases that can transfer from animal to animal. Um, Scrapie is another one of those, and, and so other other prion diseases like mad cow disease or BSE um, didn't really transfer from animal to animal in um, in like in the cattle operations. But um, so CWD is a prominent uh, lymphoid phase where we think animals get exposed orally to the disease and it replicates throughout their bodies um, as time goes on. And eventually, it spreads from the lymphoid tissues to the nerves, and then it sends the nerves to the brain. And it goes once it's in the brain, it starts causing neurological symptoms, and it causes the deer to waste away. So that they they um, they drink a lot more, they salivate a lot more, they um, uh, don't uh, don't process food as well, which makes them. Uh, get skinny, and I'm not ex- exactly sure of the mechanism how they lose weight, but we know that um, that's a that's a, a, a very prominent sign in chronic wasting disease is the is the weight loss for these deer. And um, a lot of the studies, what makes it difficult to answer your question is um, most of the studies are done using um, experimental inoculus. So we, we would take a, a big hunk of brain and feed that to a deer, and then watch to see how long that would it would take that deer to to contract the disease. And 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 um, those types of scales, it's you know they, they can exhibit symptoms in 12 months, uh, nine months even, and and then eventually die by 12 or 14, 15 months. 
but that's not how deer get exposed in the wild. You know, they get very, very small doses, um, potentially from, you know, nose to nose contact with deer or, or environmental, um, reservoirs of disease, which we know are, are much smaller than, than what we've given experimentally to animals. So, uh, the best estimates are about a two year incubation period for the disease and the asymptomatic phase, I guess a two to four year incubation period. And the asymptomatic phase can be, um, a majority of that. So a deer may not actually look sick until the very last few months of their lives. Um, and then, and then exhibit a, a handful of symptoms, uh, as, as subtle as, a, as, as one ear not being straight up when looking towards danger, you know, like very, very, very subtle, um, symptoms. And then those progress to the more prominent neurological symptoms, which, um, from what I've heard and, and talking with people who's, who see deer in the wild, that's that's a pretty rare sight, even in a even in a herd where we know that there's a, a quite a bit of CWD present. Yeah, and you know, Kip, that's one of the things where you know, as as Dr. Henderson said, as you know, you've got this long incubation period. There may be as much as two years or more where the this infectious agent is in a deer, but they're really not being impacted in it in any measurable way at that point. Uh, I know that deer are able to breed. Uh, you know, both males and females, right? Bucks are going to breed does, uh, bucks that may be infected. Those that are, are infected are able to, you know, conceive and, and carry fawns to term and, and, and reproduce. Um, and so you've got that issue. And I'm wondering how that impacts sort of the, the ongoing. Uh, are those offspring that are born infected with CWD? And then the other thing that he touched on and you can talk about a little bit is this idea that a lot of times you don't see the deer in the wild that are really sick with CWD like you might in a pen because those deer, as they become, you know, symptomatic, they become so much more prone to predation. So a lot of those deer that may be beginning to suffer from CWD, they're just not going to be as effective as a healthy deer in avoiding predators or maybe resisting other diseases. And so they're going to succumb from other causes. Technically, you know, if we were doing an autopsy on those deer, CWD might not be listed as the cause of death, but really it was the underlying factor in that deer's demise. No, you're exactly right. And, and the first half of that, Christian, you know, can, can a fawn be born with it if its mother was uh, CWD positive? Uh, the answer to that is yes, but uh, it's not a real strong way to get it. And uh, just because the mother is CWD positive doesn't mean the fawn will be born with it. Um, they have shown that it can happen, but, uh, but researchers say that, you know, that's probably not one of the more likely ways that they will get it. So, uh, so it's not a guarantee. Um, if that was the case, take a look at, you know, the endemic area of Wisconsin and uh, some areas in Wyoming and Colorado, and, you know, the majority of fawns would be born with CWD, and that, that's just not the case. So, so the answer is yes, it can happen, but there, there are other more likely ways to get it. Um, the second half of your question is, is really important, and I think this is one of the big misconceptions that's out there right now, and part of, you know, the whole battle over CWD with some hunters thinking it's not a big deal and others thinking it is. You know, you always hear folks say, well, you know, I don't, I don't see all these sick deer, and, uh, and they're right, you don't for exactly what Dr. Henderson said. You know, the incubation period is so long, during that time they have it, but they don't show any symptoms. You know, they don't show those symptoms to the very end. And in most cases, those deer end up dying of something else first. And uh, so then some hunters will say, well, as long as we shoot them first, uh, you know, hey, that's fine, right? Well, no, this still isn't good for the future of deer. The reason being, research shows that CWD-positive deer die at about three times the rate 
of deer that don't have CWD. And they die to predators and automobiles and you know, hunting and other things. Um, however, they also know that CWD positive deer are not as active as CWD negative deer. So uh, that, that obviously is never good for hunters if deer aren't moving as much. But just the increased mortality rate, you know, it is not good for the health of the deer herd. So even if they're not wasting away and we find them sick and dying, and it's very unlikely, you know, that it almost never happens. It has happened, and people have seen it happen, but uh, it is very rare. However, just the fact that they're dying at three times the rate of, of healthy deer is not good for the future of deer hunting or, or deer populations. Well, speaking of deer populations, what is sort of the long-term impact of CWD infection on a deer population in, a, in, a, in an infected area? I know, uh, and Kip, you might be able to speak you know, more knowledgeably to this. I know in Wyoming, there's been um, some ongoing research on mule deer populations uh, in areas there where CWD infection rates are, are fairly high. I'm not sure if it's been prevalent in the whitetail world for long enough for us to maybe have a really good idea on what the long-term impact is, but is there any sense uh, or certainty on either of your parts to, that you could you know, look the hunting community in the eye and say, yeah, you know, if you have uh, a herd, you know, that is infected with CWD and you just let it to itself, you know, you're going to see 20%, 50%, 80% reduction in population, or is that way too simple to try and say it that way? Now, what you're saying is correct. Um, it just takes a while for that to happen. And actually, in Wyoming, you know, they are seeing population declines in some of those areas in both mule deer and elk, uh, directly attributable to CWD. And uh, they know that you can look at, you know, a population uh, dynamics graph. And, you know, you learn way back in ecology and biology, looking at, you know, the number of animals you're bringing into a population and the mortality rate. And, uh, all that complicated stuff aside, as soon as the annual mortality rate hits a certain percent from any additional mortality source, you know, in this case, CWD, you know, you are killing more animals each year than are being brought into those populations. And, you know, in, in many deer herds, that's somewhere around, you know, 20%. Historically, we used to say, you know, you shoot 20 to 30% of the adult does in an area to stabilize that deer herd. Anything, any additional mortality makes the population decline. Anything less allows it to grow. So we can apply those same things to these herds now that have this, you know, additional mortality factor. And what they're seeing in Wyoming is they have many deer and elk herds now that have passed that threshold. So they're seeing upwards of 20% mortality strictly due to CWD. And in the real world uh, end of that is they are removing hunting opportunity because those populations simply can't sustain the same hunter harvest level that they used to because of this added uh, mortality from CWD. So for hunters to say, well, there's no real impact on the ground, any examples, that, that's absolutely false. We are seeing it in Wisconsin or in uh, Wyoming. The thing is, you know, they've had it the longest. So the next step is, will we see it in the east? Um, you know, if it's in the population long enough, we absolutely will. And, uh, and we're likely to start seeing that very soon in some of those populations in Wisconsin. That would be the first state uh, that's most likely just given it's a first place who identified it. If you take a look at the prevalence rates in those uh, counties where they, they first identified it there, you know, in some of those adult bucks, prevalence rates are, you know, 
30, 40, and over 40% of the bucks have it. Those, you know, are lower, but still climbing to the point where at some point in the very near future, you know, we're going to see population decline in Wisconsin directly attributable to this. Uh, the difference, Christian, is out west, you know, those deer now just exist at much lower densities than we have in the east and certainly than we have in that part of Wisconsin. So, uh, you know, we can withstand some population declines for a while without, you know, really having big noticeable effects. But the thing is, once they start happening, we have no way to stop them. And that's why so many wildlife managers and disease experts, you know, take such a critical look at CWD because it takes a long time to really start feeling those population level effects. But as soon as they start happening, we have no way of stopping them. Yeah, let's talk about a couple things, Dr. Henderson, that Kip mentioned there that I think you might be able to address. One is this idea that bucks tend to have a higher prevalence of infection than does. And another thing, I don't know that Kip mentioned this specifically, but I had read recently about some research that was done within the CWD community about the fact that some deer may be uh, genetically predisposed to have a higher resistance to CWD infection than others, and that perhaps over uh, a period of time of generations of deer, that that the more resistant you know strain of white whitetail you know may be able to take prevalence in a, in a given population. So talk about those two things. How to you know how to why why would bucks and does be differently affected, and are there possibly certain deer, just like different people, you know, one guy might be more prone to get the flu than the next guy. Is there a similar thing like that with, with CWD and deer? Right. Those are, those are two really good points. So I'm not much of a wildlife biologist in, under, in, in really understanding the, the intricacies of, of um, white-tailed deer and why males would have more of a prevalence than females. But that is a, a, a fact that we've seen in some populations. Um, and I, I, the, the reasons I've heard to explain that have been that there's more um, uh, animal-to-animal interaction with males and, and potentially um, more uh, chance for, to spread the disease through that um, respect. And, and to go back a little bit to the last point that um, there was a hunter uh, who gave a, 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 a talk at a, a CDPD symposium out of that in Texas, and he was a landowner in, in southern Wisconsin, uh, where there's a really high prevalence of CWD, and his farm had been there for 100 years in his family, and, and he said the main result they've seen is smaller bucks. They haven't had the same mature bucks that they used to have on the property, and that was the decline that they saw um, <clears throat> firsthand. So that, that gets a, a little bit of both of those points. You see a higher prevalence in, in bucks, and then uh, the animals just aren't living long enough to, to attain those, those larger sizes. Um, the second part of your question is really interesting in a new area of research for CWD. Um, Dr. Nick Haley um, out of Midwestern State University a Veterinary School has been working on this for the last few years, and he's identified a number of polymorphisms in the prion protein, which is what um, is the protein that's corrupt in CWD and ends up causing disease that um, prevents the, um, it doesn't, sorry, it doesn't prevent, it slows down the replication of CWD. And um, he used a technique that, that, um, that we worked on together at Colorado State when he was there called RT-Quick um, to examine how those um, different proteins would behave in a, in a kind of a mock, you know, biochemical uh, test tube infection, right? And he found that some of those uh, changes in the, in the gene really slowed down the reaction. And then if you look in um, herds uh, that have been depopulated with that had CWD, the chances of animals with those 
uh, genetic changes to be infected were were extremely low and way lower than than the more common um, polymorphisms found in white-tailed deer. And um, he's found polymorphisms in uh, deer and elk and mule deer. And and each each species seems to have a, a number of these changes that could potentially really slow down the CWD infection. And at some point, um, slow the disease down to such a slow rate that the animal would not become sick in the natural lifespan of, of that of that. Uh, animal. So uh, with these genetic changes, it could be um, it could be possible to uh, introduce those into mostly into the captive industry where um, the higher densities make them very uh, prone to get high, high levels of CWD to um, <clears throat> increase those genetic resistant genetics in those types of herds to um, to prevent the um, I guess the functional presence of CWD. There, there may be some infection, but it's not at a high enough level for uh, it, for the disease to spread or um, it, the animal can maintain that um, low level of CWD until for a natural lifespan and, and then not actually end up getting a disease. So that's a, a really new area of research and um, some exciting stuff. He's planning on a larger study to inoculate those deer or to expose them to CWD, the resistant ones and the sensitive ones, and see what happens. Um, and that's that's kind of the big question. We've kind of done one side of the, uh, the biochemical test tube side, and we've seen some evidence in populations, but no one's actually really done a really good experiment uh, looking at those resistant animals to see if they're um, really uh, able to get sick with CWD. Gotcha. So um, still early, obviously, you know, to draw any definitive conclusions, but potentially you're saying that, you know, that kind of research might lead to a vaccine at some point down the road. Well, no. So a vaccine with this disease, I think, is is not something that um, I'm really optimistic about. So it gets at kind of what the disease is. Um, it's a protein misfolding disease. So it's, it's more like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease than it is like a virus or a bacteria. Um, so the, the disease uses your the protein produced in your body um, and corrupts that into this confirmation and replicates. And that replication using your own protein um, is what causes the disease. Um, so and, and the reason a vaccine isn't, um, I think I'm not particularly excited about a vaccine is, is that's a self protein and you can't make a, a vaccine against a self protein. It, it's, it's not selected, um, for by the immune system. And if we had, and that, so that would be like an autoimmune disease if, um, our body was to make a, um, an antibody or a, um, a vaccine to one of our own proteins. Um, so it, it, it's, it's fundamentally not, um, Possible in the in the in the system um, for the for for to make a immune response to a self protein and and that's I think why uh, many of the disease uh, vaccine trials have have not produced really good results and we actually tried one at Colorado State um, using an aggregated form of the protein and, and doing some other things uh, to try and help that and uh, we never really saw much of a, a immune response to what we what we gave and and we didn't really see any results with the the overall. Um, study either. So there was, there was, there was one potential um, hope in a study that had one animal that showed resistance, but, you know, it's hard to say if that animal was just resistant for some other reason or if the, it was the vaccine that really did it, but it was only one animal out of a group of 10 um, that ever showed any kind of protection from a vaccine. So um, it just doesn't seem like something that is, is really going to um, be the silver bullet for this disease. 
okay, so if it's not a vaccine, when you're basically saying we would just have to, and you mentioned the captive deer, you know, environment specifically versus the wild, that they would just have to selectively breed for this natural resistance because it's not necessarily something that we could introduce to other individuals. Right, exactly. So the, the genes are very rare in the population, but they're, they are out there. And in fact, if you look through um, some of the, the materials in the captive cervid industry, um, they're advertising the, the presence of, you know, these animals in their herds. And, 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 and it's desirable to breed with these certain resistant genetics now um, because they're starting to realize the value, the potential value, at least, of these rare genes. Um, and there was actually a, a really famous deer out of Texas that had one of these really rare um, and resistant genes and it's kind of worked its way through the population through all the selective breeding and it, it and people are trying starting to discover that their herd may actually have some of these resistant genes um but they're just not very common in the wild so if uh, the the most uh, sensitive phenotype for prion uh, susceptibility is uh, about 60 to 70 percent of the population and the um the heterozygote so half um resistant half uh sensitive is about 20 percent of the population and then five percent is the, the uh, homozygote resistant <clears throat> version um, and that's just one of the polymorphisms the other ones um, are so rare they're less than one percent of the population um, but they're out there and it's, it'll be interesting to see how CWD affects the presence of those genes in the in those wildlife populations over time. They may um, see an increase in those resistant animals um, going forward, or introduction to them may may um, be an option in a wildlife situation to to try and increase the relative level of resistance in the in the herds. Yeah, it's very interesting. It makes me think of like a zombie movie kip where, you know, some <laughs> some crazy infection sweeps over the world and ninety five percent of everybody dies, right? And if you're one of the lucky five percent who's resistant, it's like you you're left, you know, to basically fend off the the hordes of of dead. <laughs> um, you know one thing I appreciate important okay, from a hunter's perspective with that, is uh, you know, uh, this one genotype of deer is certainly more resistant to the disease. And, uh, and as Dr. Henderson said, you know, that we just find it a lot more on the captive side. Uh, the reason for that is that genotype exists in the wild, but as he said, it exists at a very low rate. And that's because that genotype just is not good at surviving Mother Nature. Mother Nature weeds that gene out pretty quickly because it can't survive in a, a natural or a free-ranging environment. Now, so that's why you see a much higher percentage of that genotype in captivity because, you know, they're able through animal husbandry to, to keep those animals alive. So some hunters say, well, then that's ridiculous. This is of no help to us at all. And, and I don't take that approach at all. You know, I'm a very optimistic person anyway. I think this is all one of the more reasons that, you know, the, the free-ranging managers need to work more closely with the captive side because do I think that, that you know, there's going to be a genetic uh, resistance will work in the wild with what we know right now? No, not at all. Mother Nature makes it very clear that they just don't live outside of the fence. However, there's at least some hope of some type of resistance that, you know, through research, maybe we can identify something that will be more applicable free-ranging. And uh, so I, I think that there's we have to be tempered with what we're looking at with it and understand the differences between deer living inside a fence or outside a fence. But you know what, in this battle of, of CWD where there's so much unknowns and so much bad outlook, you know, here's at least potential for some little key that, you know, 
may identify something that can help us on the free-ranging side in the future. So uh, I think that's pretty important. Yeah, point well taken. You know, kind of what you're saying is, hey, the good news is, you know, you've got the gene that makes you resistant to CWD. The bad news is uh, deer that have that gene don't hear very well, don't see very well, tend to get eaten by mountain lions by the time they're about 14 months old. But enjoy the fact that you won't have CWD. <laughs> so, yeah, I hear you. A um, couple other things that I want to hit on specifically just regarding to CWD in general, and then I want to jump into some of these hot button issues that are taking place throughout the country, what state agencies are doing in terms of deer calls or, or deer urine bans or restrictions on, you know, moving deer from one state to another or parts of deer if, you, if you're a hunter. So we're going to get into all that in a couple minutes, but I want to touch on two things that are very important real quick. The first, uh, regarding CWD itself, currently, as far as I'm aware, still to this day, there is not a good way to test deer for CWD when they're still alive. Is that true, Dr. Henderson? Yeah, well, um, I think the state of Texas did um, the best study of, of looking at live deer uh, recently. So the the, the t- tough thing about anti-mortem tests is the certified tests from the USDA are post-mortem. There's no um, test that uh, the USDA would accept um, for a, a, a live deer that for CWD. Uh, but we know that it's possible to detect the disease in tissues outside of the brain um, earlier in disease. And actually, tissues outside the brain are positive for CWD prior to neuroinvasion. Um, so we know that, it, that it's at least theoretically possible. Um, so the state of Texas did a lot of uh, rectal biopsies or tonsil biopsies and studied those uh, with IHC at the uh, veterinary diagnostic lab at um, Texas A&M, and they, they went through, I think they said 20,000 samples in the last couple of years uh, testing live animals. So it's been done on a fairly large scale, and uh, I think they've, they've made a pretty good case that um, it is definitely possible. If depopulation isn't an option, I think that's a, um, a, a definitely a way forward to look at um, live animal testing the way they did it. Um, so I've also been working on live animal tests for CWD using uh, a biochemical assay that's more sensitive than IHC. Um, so it's called RT-Quick. I think I mentioned it earlier. And it, um, it amplifies really low levels of prions to a higher level, kind of like PCR works for a virus. And um, so we can use the same sorts of samples like uh, rectal biopsy or tonsil biopsy um, to potentially detect the disease in, in live animals. And we've, we've showed that it works. Um, we just submitted a paper recently that shows that it, it um, detects the disease a little bit faster than IHC and a little bit more consistently. Um, so those are some of the things that uh, we're still working on. But um, I think there's a, a promising research um, to, to help detect that in live animals going forward, especially when you know, the, the options are not good for a, a full depopulation. And, and actually the, um, the use of a high throughput test like RT quick, which is more similar to PCR, um, could potentially lead to more testing. And I think that's one of the most important things that wildlife agencies could do is, is just test more. You know, if, if we catch the disease earlier um, and figure out where those animals are, it's uh, easier to go in and manage it when you catch it early than if it's been there for a while, you know? Absolutely. So the second thing that I want to hit on before we jump into some of these other issues is, and this is very important, and, and you know, we probably should have even gotten to it before now, is can CWD 
which, you know, obviously is a problem for deer, can that infect humans? And based on everything that I know as I sit here today, uh, I think that you guys would agree that there's never been a documented case per se of CWD jumping from a deer, elk, moose, etc., to a human. That said, I'm also aware that there has been research and is ongoing research on testing the infection of CWD in other species from, you know, mice maybe to primates and by various methods of injecting that infectious prion into those other animals that they have been able to achieve some infection. So it's almost like we're at a place where we're saying, no, you know, we've never seen this happen where a human was infected. But on the other hand, we can't say with absolute certainty that it's impossible. And, you know, that can be a little bit of a scary thing. So you both may want to comment on that. Dr. Henderson, why don't you start with where the science is on that? And then, Kip, maybe you kind of add to that from the the hunter's perspective of what do we do as hunters when we're out there, you know, potentially harvesting deer in areas where CWD is present? Right. So um, the, where the science stands is, is um, like you said, there, there's never been a documented case in humans. Um, and the transmission studies have, have gone through many um, attempts. So the first uh, look was at using transgenic mice, which expressed the human version of the protein to kind of simulate a human in a mouse. Um, those studies are not particularly, were, were, not, uh, con- were, were not infectious. The human um, mice did not get CWD um, from the injected material. Um, other studies have looked at um, squirrel monkeys uh, do get infected by CWD. They're a model that's fairly close to humans. Um, there is a model that's closer, uh, the macaque monkeys, and there's been conflicting studies there. The only published studies say that there was no transmission between CWD and macaques, um, and, but there's a study that's out there that I saw the presentation at a meeting, uh, but it's not published yet, and I've heard there's... Um, some sort of methodological problems with the study that it may not get published, but they showed results that um, feeding uh, elk meat uh, with CWD to macaque monkeys was um, what did transmit CWD to to those monkeys. But it um, it hasn't been published yet, and it's kind of hard to say what exactly is going to happen there. So um, the 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 thing, the cautionary tale there is that in BSC, uh, the epidemic um, exposed millions of people potentially to that disease, and and not very many people got sick. So yeah, there. just just to interrupt you, you're talking about mad cow disease. Yeah, sorry, mad cow disease. Exactly. Um, gotcha. so only 200 people have died from mad cow disease, and the only instance where two people in the same family got the disease was in, I think it was Spain, where they uh, they ate brain of a cow. And that that illustrates a really important point: is that the brain has the very highest highest levels, you know, thousands of fold more, maybe a hundred thousand fold more than you would find in muscle. So that illustrates that it's a dose effect. So if you do something like eat a very high risk tissue or exposed to really high risk material, then that I think increases the risk. So so eating CWD meat is a is a low risk material, um, and and the chance of, of humans contracting it I think is is really really small. But you know the CDC and other and most state agencies suggest that you don't eat CWD positive meat if you know it's CWD positive. 
So, Kip, as a hunter, uh, you know, all that is well and good, right? It's a very, very low possibility, but you know how that goes. I mean, low possibility is great unless you're the one guy who happens to get it, right? <laughs> so, like, that's the fear, right? So, what do you tell people, you know, as a fellow hunter and as a, you know, representative of the QDMA, uh, how we ought to, you know, deal with this possibility? Yeah, well, Christian, we're both Pennsylvanians, and uh, we like to use everything possible, so I'm sure that, uh, just like me, you grew up in a hunting camp where you kill a deer, you bring the heart back, you bring a liver back, we're eating those, so uh, I guess now the advice is uh, leave the brain in the woods, even if you're from Pennsylvania. Yeah, well, I've never eaten a deer brain, and I don't plan to start anytime soon. That's right. I, uh, this is a really big thing for hunters because, uh, like with many cases, you know, uh, gossip and, and you know misconceptions become reality, and then it changes the way the hunters hunt. Changes the way that hunters uh, share meat. Um, I'm really pleased that the the publication that or the, the project the doctor has talked about uh, showing the macaques could can can uh, could become infected. Um, you know, we're going on two years of that now. When that first came out, that was a really big deal. So almost two years, it still has not been published. And um, from talking with researchers in the know, it probably never will be. Um, most likely, they said uh, there were some concerns about clean techniques, clean being in quotes, uh, techniques during that research. So uh, the really good part is, you know, on the U.S. side, we replicated similar project and found, you know, the macaques, none of those became infected. So I think that's a really good sign for humans. You know, it's at least a lot more positive than the study that they showed that it was possible. So is it possible? It probably is. You know, fortunately, everything we've done thus far shows that it's likely, if it is possible, extremely difficult. So doesn't mean that they can never jump the species barrier, but uh, I think from a hunting end, what we need to know is, you know, they've taken a pretty hard look at it thus far, and we haven't identified it, so that's positive. Now, the real impact, though, from the hunting end is, I mean, just, just the thought of that, you know. So I think from deer managers and educators end, we need to, to really step up our game with sharing this information with hunters and letting them know that, hey, it's okay to continue to hunt. But I'll tell you what, where we really start seeing some of the impacts is in hunter attitude and hunter effort and in venison sharing. And, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate. You know, my wife loves to go hunting. She loves to cook venison. We share venison. You know, we have conversations now if I hunt out of state that we would have never had in the past. Conversations like, are you hunting in a CWD positive area? That immediately changes the whole dynamic of... Am I going to get to go hunting there? How long am I going to hunt? What type of money am I putting into a wildlife management system? So today, yeah, yeah, those are actually having bigger impacts on hunting than yeah. is just because of the potential for it to pass to humans. All right, let me, never does. let me interrupt you, though. Let me interrupt you because I hear what you're saying, and I don't necessarily completely disagree with you. But there's also a part of me, Kip, who says, okay, let's take a step back here. Okay, we first identified this disease sometime in the 1960s in Colorado, where Dr. Henderson is. And so we know if it's been present out there, at the very least, it's been in wild servant populations in Colorado for 50 years or so. Maybe it was around a long time before that, but science, quote unquote, just hadn't identified the disease. At any rate, 
at a bare minimum for 50 years it's been present in Colorado. Colorado still has the largest elk herd of anywhere in North America. Colorado still has white-tailed deer and mule deer throughout its historic range, and people both who live in Colorado and out-of-state hunters go to Colorado in droves every year to hunt white-tails, mule deer, and elk, eat those animals, and there's nowhere in the state where those animals have been wiped out by CWD, nor has there been even a single case definitively showing that anyone who has eaten any meat by an animal that may have been infected been infected with CWD, that a person has become sick as a result of that. So then I'm like, are we overblowing this situation? You know, and either one of you are welcome to respond to that. I think that, you know, that's, there. you know, like I said, there's a part of me that looks at it that way and says, how worried should I be about this? Well, I think that right, like are we overblowing it? I think that we are certainly providing the, the correct message to folks that, hey, this is a really big deal. Um, Sure, people still go to Wyoming and Colorado, there's no doubt. Not as many people go to Wyoming as in the past because of impacts of disease. Not that they wouldn't want to, they just can't. Uh, Wisconsin's a perfect example because of fear of the disease. You know, if you take a look at hunting license sales, there's a, the first year in Wisconsin was shot in 01, they confirmed it, you know, early in the year in 02. The number of license sales in 02 dropped tremendously from 01. It recovered a little bit in 2003, but it's never recovered back to what it was. Now, is that because CWD is cross-line? Not at all. But you asked me to talk about from 100, that's a real impact. Hunters are nervous about it, right or wrong. So because of that, they've never hunted in Wisconsin at the same rate that they hunted before it was identified. And granted, there's a lot of things today with fewer hunters than we had in the past, but some of that in Wisconsin anyway is directly related to at least the threat or the potential of eating CWD positive deer. Dr. Henderson, yeah, the, do you have the other thing something? Is, yeah, go ahead. Please add. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, the the thing I'd like to just mention, I think the one thing that we could do that would make participation and the fear of CWD lessen in the hunting community is make the test for CWD for hunters easier, faster, and and you know just generally more accepted in the in the community. Um, if that if, if that became possible and you could tell relatively quickly whether or not the deer that you just hunted has CWD, then I think that would increase the participation in areas where there were higher levels of CWD. Um, I know certain states like Wisconsin have worked really hard to get results back quickly to people, but you still have to take a whole head or a whole animal into a station and have a professional remove the sample. If we could get past that, then I think um, that, that would increase participation. So It's a a tough problem, and you know, are are the populations affected? Are the people who are uh, hunting coming, um, you know, less often? Um, That's not really my area of expertise, but you know, you make a good point that Colorado's had the disease for a really long time, and and people seem to still think Colorado's a a great place to hunt. But you know, uh, there has to be some effect um, in in a in a larger scale instead of just a perception. And I think. Kip did a good job uh, illustrating with some numbers exactly what happens after a CWD infection um, is is made public, and I think there is a real effect. Yeah, let's let's talk about a few other things that happen after there's a CWD infection. One of which I know was sort of a focus of your presentation at the Archery Trade Show, Doctor Henderson. Is they, uh, you know, a lot of states, uh, you know, have already uh, banned the use of uh, urine-based attractants, and I think other states are considering 
considering similar bans. And obviously the concern is, as you said, you know, there are uh, the infectious agent, the prions are present in uh, basically all kinds of tissues from infected animals, obviously highest in the brain and I think the spinal cord, but lesser amounts, of course, in, in the meat and even in saliva, urine, feces, etc. So um, there's obviously been pushback from the, um, you know, the companies that collect the urine, uh, manufacture the various commercial uh, 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 scent attractants that are available that saying, hey, you know, there's no there's no uh, definitive link between putting out a couple ounces of, of deer attractant and uh, infecting a new area with CWD. And you've been involved, I think, with some research on that end. So, you know, talk to me about the science on that. And then, Kip, maybe you can comment on, you know, what QDMA's position is on that and, and where you kind of come down on that. So go ahead, Dr. Henderson. Sure, thanks. Um, so yeah, I've been involved with this for a little while. Um, a couple of the uh, people who run the, the companies came up to me and you know, called me on the phone and asked me uh, some questions. And we, we realized that you know that I had answers that they were not expecting. Like, do you think deer urine poses a risk to, to wild deer in, in the volumes that are found in center tracking bottles? And I said, no. Um, and they're like, well, that's what we've been saying. And, you know, and I don't offer any opinions on this um, on this topic, I just have you know research facts and, and the studies that I've done that show that the levels in deer urine are extremely low, and I think that's that's kind of one of the facts that's lost in this in this debate is that um, the, the levels in brain are extremely high, you know, thousands and thousands of doses in a gram, um, lethal doses for a deer in a gram of brain, um, and then you you kind of walk down the ladder from there, and, and you know lymph nodes are are the next uh, highest. Uh, tissue with CWD and then you, know, you go down the scale to debone meat um, or meat and then down to the excreta like saliva has higher levels than feces and urine. And so um, there's a study that, that showed that deboned meat um, injected in a transgenic mice uh, was capable of uh, establishing infection in 100% of those mice. And, uh, and the same mice were used with urine, and, and one of nine mice um, succumbed to disease, which is less than a 50% lethal dose. Um, so we know the levels are really low, um, and that's kind of where I came into the debate, looking at uh, whether or not CBD could be found in urine. And I used the same amplification test um, to determine whether or not CBD is found in urine, and, and it's extremely extremely sensitive test. We're talking about levels that are a million fold less than brain and, you know, an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude below an infectious dose in, in a mouse um, model where the, the, the prion is injected directly into the brain. Um, so the volumes required to establish an infection to a deer is, you know, half a liter of urine, maybe. Um, so indirect, directly inoculated from one CWD positive deer to another orally. And, and that's just not a type of uh, situation that you're going to find where uh, people are using these scent products. So I think it's uh, the, the, the argument I've heard against it is, um, you know, the, there's, no, there's not no risk. There's no, that you can't say there's no chance of spreading CBD through uh, deer urine. And, and, you know, and, and I, and the studies that I did um, mainly looked at, you know, an environmental level or population level. Um, can urine be um, established a CWD infection in the population through environmental contamination? Um, and that might be possible through, you know, a herd of deer uh, over the course of many years, maybe a decade, contaminating an environment. But I still think it's the carcasses in the wild that's actually establishing the environmental reservoirs. Um, but the, the levels in urine are low, and the companies have taken extreme um, precaution in making sure they only source their products from facilities that don't have CWD. 
And that's the other side of this is they've um, spent a lot of time uh, working with their producers to to ensure the safety of their product. And they really do care. I mean, they're hunters. Uh, they know their customers are hunters. They, they want to protect the population just like, like you and I do. Um, and so they've taken these steps and they're still getting their products banned um, in states. And, you know, I've tried to help at least tell people about the science behind this um, to hope, hopefully all people understand this a little bit better. Yeah, well, I mean, that is the thing, right, is there, like you said, there, it's probably true that there's not, you know, there's not 0.00, you know, risk in using it. But at the same time, there's people's uh, livelihoods are on the line. And honestly, hunting tradition as well, because scents are, you know, an effective um, tool in the hunter's toolbox, you know, to be used strategically uh, to enhance, you know, the possibility of success. So, you know, do you want to take uh, jobs away? Do you want to take, you know, revenue away? Do you want to take tools out of the hunter's toolbox uh, for, you know, preventing something that science would say is, is, you know, based on your opinion, what you've just told me is negligible, but maybe, you know, Kip has a different viewpoint. I know, Kip, that in your capacity with QDMA, you uh, provide input, testimony to state wildlife agencies all around the country on a fairly regular basis, what do you advise uh, these agencies when it comes to issues like deer urine? Well, there's this becoming a much bigger issue. Uh, at least eight states today uh, prohibit any type of natural uh, deer or elk urine, uh, with other states done not allowing it in uh, disease areas and, and more states talking about it. So I get to talk about this pretty frequently with folks, you know, and what, what is your guys' opinion? And, you know, we take a look at what the best science shows, and, uh, you know, and we have not supported urine bans. Um, the only time that, uh, well, I guess we did partially in Michigan, um, we supported a, a, a management package that they had that did include a urine ban that was part of it, but uh, every other case, uh, we don't think the data is strong enough to support a urine ban. Um, what it really comes down to is that's, a, that's an easy thing for states to uh, battle uh, with regard to the other things that, that really impact CWD, so I think that's why they, they jump on that one. Um, I understand that uh, you know there is some risk, uh, albeit very, very low, so you know the, the, the purest of, of conservation minds want to remove all risk. Um, we take a look at it, but as you know, it's kind of like a, a bucket of water that has a huge hole at the bottom, and uh, that's moving live deer. And another big hole right beside it that's moving the high-risk parts of, of uh, harvested deer. You know, and then we see urine as kind of like a little pinhole up at the top. Like, if you're not going to address the, the big things, you're like, why even mess with this little pinhole? And we're, we're on record and feel very strongly that the best way ways that we can limit the spread of this disease and try to allow science to catch up to really help us is to stop moving live deer, and that's deer farms and state agencies. We don't think a state agencies ought to be moving them either for the reasons that Dr. Henderson talked about, you know, with a live animal test. And, uh, man, if we had a really, really good live animal test, that would be a godsend. But stop moving live deer, stop moving the high-risk parts of harvested deer, and that would do more than anything else. So I think that there's way too much energy spent on trying to ban urine, you know, and kicking hunters for that part of it when they allow these other things that are much more likely to spread the disease, either allowing them to happen or are not doing much to really educate the hunters, particularly from the moving the high-risk parts of carcass, to stop that. And, you know, there's a lot of states that don't allow that today, but there's some that still allow free movement completely from anywhere. Those are the things we really ought to be attacking, not the use of urine. 
Yeah, well, just to add one thing to that, you know, like you, you talked about most states, Pennsylvania, certainly most of the states that I travel to hunt in that have CWD, you know, there are rules in place that prevent me from bringing back, you know, brain matter, uh, spinal cord matter, even bones. They want you to bring back only deboned meat, only a, a, a skull plate that's been cleaned off. But at the same time, enforcement of that, boy, so hard, Kip, you and I know. I mean, I hate to say it, but you and I know untold thousands or tens of thousands of hunters every year are probably killing deer in CWD infected areas and moving them back home to wherever it is that they came from. Um, not because they're malicious, but they're just unwittingly uh, probably not even aware of the regulation. Some are probably aware, but maybe they don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah, I agree with you. That's that's a big problem. Um, one other thing, and I know we're, we're running out of time, and I boy, we knew when we started this show today that we could go a long time on this topic because it, it, it is it, there's a lot of uh, veins in this spider web for sure. But one last thing that I want to talk about, because we can't do a show on CW without touching on this is this idea of massive population reduction uh, in areas where CWD has been identified. You know, Kip, you and I are both aware as Pennsylvanians that just this week, the Pennsylvania Game Commission came out with a a news release saying that in parts of uh, Blair and Bedford counties where CWD has been identified in the wild, that they're going to work with the U.S. uh, Department of Agriculture Wildlife Services this winter to reduce the population of of whitetails in that area, entire area, to between 2,000 and 2,500 deer. What they don't say in this release is, how many deer are there now? It's probably a heck of a lot more than 2,500, and how many deer are they going to bring sharpshooters in to kill this winter? That is the kind of thing that, you know, if you're a hunter, you don't like hearing about that. Maybe it's the right thing to do. Uh, I don't know that I'm 100% convinced it is, but even if it is, it, it makes you sick to think about it. Kip, what do you think about efforts like this? I know Wisconsin, when they first identified, they tried to do similar things to really go into those areas that were hardest hit and reduce the deer population. Other states have taken a more measured approach and say, we're not sure, and we're going to kind of let it play out. Do you feel like one is better option than the other? And just as a hunter personally, I mean, how do you react when you hear about things like this that are going to be happening. I think that the Wisconsin's a, a perfect example of worst case scenario and you know, what not to do. Um, you know, I feel bad for them. They were the first one to get it, so they didn't really know a whole bunch. But they immediately alienated the hunters by using words like eradicate deer, go to zero, and it doesn't matter how good your plan is, you cannot succeed without the uh, support of hunters because they have to help. You can draw the best plan up in the world on paper, and if hunters don't execute it, it's going to fail. So in any case like this, it has never been more important for the agency and the hunters to have a good working relationship. I've seen examples around the country where it has failed miserably. Minnesota, it is failing right now with uh, with the uh, increased killings in the southeast part of the state. Now you can go not that far east to Michigan and see where it is their CWD plan is working extremely well with great hunter involvement with the agency and helping kill additional deer in some of these towns and sharpshooting areas. So, so much of this is about the messaging and engaging the hunters up front to let them understand this is why we're doing it. Here's why it's important for your future. I've seen the data in Pennsylvania and I'm, you know, I'm glad that I 
don't live there, I wouldn't want to have to do that. But our, as our prevalence rates of CWD increase in that area, we're on the same prevalence rate increase as Wisconsin. So we, the state has to do something or we are going to be in a very bad position in the future. So I'm glad they're being proactive to do something. Um, I, I don't think the hunters are as aware from a messaging end um, as they could be. So uh, I think that is so important from the agency's end to, to really engage hunters and, and let them know what's going on. Um, I do like one thing about it, how hunters were given the, the first chance to, to accomplish what they wanted there, to try to limit the spread of it. I think that is a good thing. It was a great attempt by the agency to try to work hunters in. And uh, so it's a tough situation, there's no doubt. But we do know if they did nothing and kept on what was going now, we we're going to be infested like Wisconsin in the future. And we know we don't want that. Okay, so last question for Dr. Henderson, and then we'll wrap this up. Piggybacking on what Kip said, what does the science say about how effective, um, you know, really reducing uh, the deer population density in a given area is at slowing or stopping the spread of CWD? I mean, are we really, are we doing ourselves a big favor here in terms of buying ourselves a lot of extra time or you know, creating a barrier to prevent the disease from moving into adjacent areas? Because if we're not, it's a big price to pay, uh, you know, as hunters to give up all those deer, you know, if we're not really getting something in exchange. So so what do you see from from the science end of that? Absolutely. Yeah, the, there really hasn't been enough scientific research done on this question. Um, we're doing experiments right now, I guess. Um, the Norway had a CWD uh, outbreak or a number of reindeer that tested positive, and they went in and depopulated all 3,000 of them in an area, and they're trying to keep all animals out of that area for, I don't know, they, they, five years, 10 years, I can't remember what the number was, but so that's an absolute extreme case I've heard. Uh, Wisconsin, I think, did um, had some efforts to try and reduce the population, and the deer came back in and ended up with CWD again. So I think it goes back to the idea of when did you catch CWD in the state? So the state of New York seemed to um, be able to get rid of it right away by, by going in and, and doing some targeted culling. Um, and But they, they were doing a lot of testing. They, they had um, you know a really good surveillance program in place. They caught the disease early and they, um, they, they might have got rid of it. Um, it hasn't popped up again. So uh, I think it depends on how early you catch the disease and, and how long it's been there. If it's been there for a long time, I don't, I'm not sure these are the depopulation is the way to, to deal with it. I don't think anyone knows the best way to manage CWD um, in an area where the disease is endemic, like Colorado. Um, you know, this, like the state of Wyoming, I think, has done... Uh, almost nothing, I think, for the CWD besides, you know, watch and, watch and wait and see what happens and, and look at the population. Um, so, you know, the, the, popu- the, the approaches have, have ranged from doing nothing to, you know, doing the, the extreme and culling the entire population like Norway did. So, you know, I, I think the jury's still out on what the best scientific approach is. And I wish I can give you more answers on this, but it's a really tough problem. You know, I've thought about this a lot and I can't come up with um, a scientific, uh, you know, result or something that points to the right Thing to do. Um, it's, we just need to know more. We need to we need to try some some management practices and then see how they turn out. And I, I absolutely agree that having uh, hunters in the conversation from the very beginning is going to do everyone a favor um, and and just and, and make it um, a, a more tenable uh, outcome. No matter what the, the um, research proposal is 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 going to do, whether it's calling, whether it's uh, more monitoring. 
So uh, more testing and, uh, and and easier access for hunters to test, I think, is a, the two things we really need to work on um, in order to get a handle of this uh, disease and, and understand it a little bit better. Yeah, and I think that's a great place to end. I'm going to call out two things you just said, Dr. Henderson, that are the scariest things about this disease to me as a hunter, and I would reinforce this to the listeners. Think about all the information we shared in today's episode. It was great. I mean, I loved this show just in terms of the depth of the conversation, the information that's shared. But yet, at the end of the day, at the end of the episode, Dr. Henderson, two things you said. We don't know, and the jury is still out. And that's the scariest thing to me about CWD, because there is still so much we don't know. And all these agencies are are trying to do their best or what they think is the best to get a handle on this, to combat it, to use the tools that they have at their disposal. But ultimately, we don't know how this is all going to play out. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying we're going to have to keep monitoring the situation. I know you, Kip and you, Dr. Henderson, are going to continue to keep your ears to the ground for the latest developments on CWD. And perhaps at some point in the future, we can come back together again and and kind of look at what we've learned, you know, since today that, that we didn't know now. So thank you both so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners do too, because it's such an important topic for anybody who bow hunts in North America. And to get you guys on with your expertise, uh, couldn't ask for a, for a better panel today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yep. Thank you, Christian. It was a good conversation. I appreciate being a part of it. Yes, sir. All right. Well, you guys have a great day, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bowhunting on your local newsstand, or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com. 